1: I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Tonight, we're talking to Andrea Jenkins. Andrea is best known as a playwright, a curator, a visual artist, a poet, writer, spoken word artist, performer, and a trans activist. Her work yeah. is with the interplay of words, mediums, and genres that can be mashed together to create a new narrative. She views her work as a collage, working primarily with paper and mixed media as a visual form of creation. She's taking various images that have been artfully produced for the purpose of consumerism and mixing them with social justice messages and images, bringing attention to the issues of inequality. She's originally from Chicago, but calls South Minneapolis home. Andrea has won many awards. She's a former board member of Outfront Minnesota, Forecast Public Arts, the Minnesota HIV Planning Council, the Funding Exchange, and the National Writers' Union. She holds a BA in Human Services, MS in Community Economic Development, and an MFA in Creative Writing from Hamlin university, she's also the trans oral historian of the Treasure collection of the University of Minnesota. This year, which I think is just like so exciting, Andrea is running for City Council in Minneapolis's <laughs> eighth ward. <Yeah>. Wow, <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Welcome. Hey, I'm, I'm so thank you. Thank you
2: thank you for that beautiful introduction that was that was awesome uh we do a lot of things in life, and sometimes you know you just move from thing to thing man and um you don't really dwell on what has happened in the past but um i have a I have a pretty rich history, and I'm proud of it so thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, you do. I mean, you know, I still remember like the first time meeting you, and it was like at Creating Change, and I'm sitting there talking with, with my brother, Kyler Brotus, and you woke yeah. up, and you were just like, I mean, a breath of fresh air. You just like, I mean, I was just like impressed, okay, and, and part of because, you know, I mean, as my mother would say, you are a long, tall drink of water, and you're <laughs> stunning, and you came down, and you had your book, The Tea is Not Silent, and you said, you know, this is my book. And I mean, I just sort of looked at it and I, I immediately had to have it. You know, I bought it, I I have it. It is one of my prized possessions. And it's one of the things that, you know, we've talked before, like often I get invited to many events from my trans community here in Michigan. And one of uh-huh. them is about poetry. And prior to meeting you, I would go and, like, sometimes I'd read my own poetry or do whatever else, but it sort of hit me. This is a trans day of visibility, and so I, for the past few years, I've been reading something from your book, and reading your words and having people come up and, like, ask, you know, always trying to steal my copy of the book, but then also (laughs) asking, like, where can they get the book, but then saying how that's how they feel, or, you You nailed it, and I mean that's just, oh, wow. i mean that that's just like great, and I know that then you went on and you re- the book is out again, well it's,
2: it's yeah.
1: refashioned, but it's out again
2: we, we, we reissued we reissued a new edition and added some more poems and um you know we were, we had an editor we worked with an editor and a publishing house um it was initially self-published, and then um, so you know we were able to to reissue a new book with the same title, right? So um, it includes some of the poems that um, were in my initial offering, but also added some poems. Um, took we took out some of the essays that are in that were in the first edition that you had a copy of mm-hmm. and um I think really tightened up the book, made it more powerful. I'm so proud of it. Um it's been selling really well, Michelle, um even much better than the first edition and um yeah, I'm 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 really, really just excited about it and proud and feeling good oh, about no, it.
1: No, I, I, I have both copies. <laughs> Oh, okay. So you do own the second copy. I, I do, I do. I mean, 'cause I remember like, um you know, the next time that I saw you and then which is like, you know, you have these these encounters. And I remember I saw you at Fire and Ink, and I was like, you know, it's oh, Andrew Jenkins and I went and I over and, <laughs> and you remembered me and I was like and it was just like we had taken up the conversation from the day before. And then Oh was my like, goodness. I mean, and it was and then, you know you know, so I mean yes I've got I a
2: absolutely answer. remember <laughs> you. I remember we were I, I like the vision of our meeting is like deeply imprinted in my mind. Like we were sitting in these big leather chairs and a wooden, very wood heavy environment and we ordered cocktails, um Mm-hmm. and you know your partner had a beer, and we were talking about beer, and we were talking about Detroit and Chicago, where I'm from and uh Tyler, as you mentioned, was there it was just a it was a really sort of like you said a special moment. it just felt like some some energy and some sparks were dying, so
1: uh I
2: absolutely remember you.
1: Mm-hmm. right that was that was just like so cool, so you know your first book, um when you first did it, and I mean, and I know having done that, you know when you take it and you put it together, and really, you are your own marketing team when you started you know when you put those those poems together, and I know like sometimes when you put that book together and you're putting it from your heart and you know that everybody is, is, you know, isn't going to get it, you know, you'd like to be on, you know, that bestseller list, but right then it's like, these are things that you need to, to get out there. You just have to do what you need to say. Who was your initial audience?
2: Oh boy. Um, you know, that's a really good question. Um, you know, like you mentioned, I do a lot of public speaking and a lot of reading um and i I had um read a lot of those poems in public spaces and had many of them published in different um different anthologies and things so you know my 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 goal was to just really bring everything together um in one place so that you know when I do go out and do these readings um that if people wanted to take my work home they would have that opportunity so um you know primarily I talk to um college groups and LGBT groups um Women's um, groups and, and people of color, particularly African American groups too. So, I guess you could say that was my audience. Um, you know, the people who I who had been sort of um, you know following me and inviting me to speak at various places. Um, I wanted to create something so that so that those people could have Something to hold on to, and and in, in addition to that, um, you know, I would say I was really trying to speak my heart to my own community, right, to African American um, and other ethnically identified transgender people. Like, I really wanted something that trans people could hold up and say. Um, I can resonate with this story. Um, she is a person from my community, and she is putting our voices out there so um in many ways, it was sort of an internal community publication that as you as you mentioned before, you know you always hope that. A universal message is being communicated, right, so that anybody could um, hold it up and say, "Wow, I can see myself in this." So that's how all of my writing goes, Michelle. But um, but I was I was really looking towards the trans community as my audience, knowing full well that even if I sold the book to every transgender person on the Planet. I wasn't going to make a whole bunch of money, you know, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but I want to, I wanted to create something for, for the community. The second expedition, though, no, I was actively seeking a broader audience, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was really thinking about, cause if you read, you know, some of the books are not necessarily transgender related. Uh, some of the poems but they come from a transgender woman's perspective um, so uh yeah, in that second publication i was I was actively trying to reach uh a broader audience of um of people who are concerned about social justice, who are concerned about immigrant rights issues, who are concerned about women's rights issues uh, and trying to trying to reach and connect with that community, that audience.
1: You know, I mentioned that you're originally from Chicago, and I'm wondering, um, you know, Chicago, I mean, sometimes I go to Chicago to get my LGBTQ fix, you know, because, um, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, you know what I mean? And then.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a then, very rich culturally, uh, cultural community from African American culture to LGBT culture to transgender specific culture, uh, even more specifically to Black transgender culture. Um, so yeah, that's that's the place to be, man.
1: Well, so when when you go from from there to now, you're in Minneapolis, and you talked about how in the second book how you covered a broader span of of things. Everything wasn't, you know, they were broader interests on social justice and everything. Did you find that moving like from the safe zone, I mean, although there's no really safe zone in the world, but in in a place where you might be more comfortable, you were more likely to turn the corner and see someone like you, either who was black, Uh to, to this other environment. Did that make you... As you went back and looked at your earlier work, or how you have been thinking, did it did it like sort of expand how you were you were seeing things to really recognize that here you stood, that you are really a very intersectional person, you know, you are, you're black, you're trans, you're female, you're tall, you know, you're a poet, (laughs) you've got this voice. Did that that geographic change change your writing and speaking?
2: You know, that is a deep, deep, deep question, and I deeply appreciate it. Um, So I am in a really successful anthology called Blues Vision. Um, uh, African-American writers write about Minnesota. And one of the interesting things about the book is that you know we were all asked to talk about um what it means to be a transplant and what impact does minnesota have on your writing as an african-american writer Um, because most of the contributors to the book were from somewhere else Um, and you know i think it has changed my perspective and my writing. Um, I think when, you know, growing up in Chicago in this really all black, uh, environment that, um, contrary to number 45 perception of Chicago, I think Chicago okay. has probably, uh, <laughs> I think Chicago has one of the highest, um, concentrations of Black intellectuals in the world, personally, um, I think, you know, it has some of the highest concentration of African-American business owners and educators and um, administrators and um, corporate presidents, and, and all of this can be verified, right? Like, you can go look mm-hmm. up this information. Um but, um, you know you have a tendency in that environment to really, really focus on just black issues um, I think being here in Minnesota has exposed me to um a broader um, a broader viewpoint and understanding of Uh, oppressions and how they impact um, multiple oppressed communities. Um, You know, Latino and Latinx people, uh, Asian and Asian American folks, uh, Asian Pacific Islanders, um, you know, a lot of your African immigrants that come to the United States and that have really called Minnesota Home. So from that perspective, it, it has really broadened my awareness of different communities and how the issues that impact those communities uh, also intersect and impact African American communities. And consequently, that we need to be uplifting um, and intersecting all of our uh Social justice movements because we're all fighting for the same thing, and that's uh, equity and a recognition of our humanity and equal opportunity in this land we call America. So,
3: so yeah. Uh,
1: I, uh, and uh, you know, and it's interesting that here, you know, like, and like you said, being a part of. All of these things, and hearing all of these, like they, like you said, there's a big immigrant community, and stepping outside of, and like you said, you know, like I was saying earlier, Chicago isn't perfect, but you know, for if you're black, I mean, if you're gay, I mean, I can I can recall things that make me feel good about being safe. Like you said, all the the things that 45 doesn't acknowledge that's there, and that I can go and see that, you know, as as a a queer person going there and feeling comfortable. And then, but here you are, and it seems like such an appropriate time that someone like you who has gone through this journey now is stepping into the political arena. What made you decide to do that?
2: Wow. Great question. Um, you know, um, I've been involved in politics for a long time. Um, Michelle and and even you know relating it back to Chicago like you know Chicago is a very very political city from mm-hmm. electoral politics to cultural politics like um, you know um, there was no shortage of black power movements growing out of Chicago as you are fully aware the Black Panthers had a mm-hmm very, very strong, uh, roots in Chicago, um, Operation Push, Jesse Jackson, Mm -hmm. um, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, like Chicago and, uh, number 44, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, was, was, uh, honed and educated in Chicago too. So, um, Uh, There's a rich, rich tradition of politics in Chicago, and in fact, the first campaign I ever worked on was for Harold Washington, who was the first black mayor of Chicago. Um, And I was 18 years old, and it was the first time I ever voted, and I voted for Harold Washington. So, um, you know, politics has sort of been in my blood. But I I literally worked in politics here in Minneapolis for 12 years. I worked for two different city council members. So I got a chance to really see, you know, how the sausage gets made, as they say, (laughs) um, and how the political process works. And, you know, I got to meet a whole bunch of the players um, and really got to meet and know the people of the ward that I'm running in, you know, the the community members who make up this area. And um, I've just been doing a lot of work here for the past 12 years. And I really recognize, you mentioned that I have a, a, a master's degree in community development. And in doing that work, you know, I recognize that there are really like, three ways to affect social change. And certainly, you know, they, they all need to sort of work together. But there's an activist lane, right? You need people out there making noise, marching, protesting, mm-hmm. um, and creating awareness around particular issues. You need somebody that's addressing the issues for people. So let's take, for example, you know, you have this women's march. But a big part of the women's march is Planned Parenthood. Planned Mm -hmm. Planned Parenthood provides services, right? That's what they do. They provide services. You also need um, a political arm to that. You need people who are going to be at the table making policies um, that are going to be there when the protest has gotten the establishment's attention somebody who's at the table to say, hey, these are the demands. This is how we want to negotiate. Um, And I think I'm prepared at this point in time to be that person sitting at the table saying, hey, women want equal pay, and um, transgender people want affordable housing and access to medical care, and black people need jobs, and You know, we need the police to stop shooting us, Um, you know, and and I think I'm prepared at this point in time to be that messenger, to be that advocate, to be that person sitting at the table advocating for the uh, concerns of marginalized communities that I am a part of and broader communities that I know their issues intersect with the issues that I am deeply concerned about. So...
1: No, I was reading, and they said that. hope that
2: answers uh, your question.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I, and really, I mean, and that is the answer. I mean, and, and I think that that's all of these things that you are make you that person. And I really, you know, I I feel you. I mean, what you're saying, like to me, <laughs> rings so true. I was reading how they said that there is another candidate who's running, who also happens to be transgender, is it Philippe Cunningham? I mean. How yeah,
2: keep, African-American.
1: <laughs> all right, okay. Okay, how do, you ever, how do you keep the noise down? You know, because they said, like, either of you would be the first transgender big city council member in the country and probably the highest elected transgender person in American history. How do you keep this background noise down to focus on what you just said, why you are the person to be there?
2: You know, Michelle... I fifty five years old and um so I'm not a spring chicken. You as you mentioned, um, you know, I guess fortunately for me at this moment in time, like, I've had a lot of attention. Like I'm this is not new for me to get media attention and um to be the first transgender person to do this, that or the other thing. I was the first policy aide in City Hall, first African-American trans out transgender person to be hired as a policy aide, which was kind of a big deal. You know, so um, I'm about to work, Michelle. Mm -hmm. You know, so (laughs) to me, you know, I I can't say this it's just another job, because it's much, much more than that, and I understand the symbolism, and I understand the the inspiration that I hope that people will gain from me uh, if I get elected being um, a city council member here in the city of Minneapolis. You know, um, but at the end of the day, I'm a worker, and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just going to work, so... <laughs> It, it it it's a big deal, but it, it's nothing that I haven't been doing for the past fifty five years. Like you know, it's just a different environment. So um, I don't know. I'm it hasn't it hasn't blown up yet. I haven't made it on the cover of Time magazine or nothing like that. So I guess we'll get to that when we get to it. But um, but you know, for right now. This, this is what I do, and you know, um, I, can't, I can't honestly tell you that it is no big deal, but mm-hmm. I am at a point in my life where I recognize that people um, people respect you not for who you uh, say you are, but for how you make them feel. And so all of the accolades, you know, they feel good. But if you're not putting in the work, you know, Mm -hmm. pretty soon that respect is going to diminish and go away. And those accolades are going to go away and all of that. So I really focus on doing the work.
1: And, you know, I think that that, that's, that's a perfect, you know, introduction to one of the other things that you do, which I think is just, like, amazing, that you're collecting this this. You're a trans oral historian. Because we know, you know, even though people try to act like it's all brand new, we know that there's been people in the community for decades, for years doing the work. You know, not looking for accolades or they're just doing the work. And now you're going around and you're collecting these histories, you know, so that we don't forget how did how did this project come about?
2: Wow, that's a great question. Um, so as you mentioned earlier, I work for the Tretter Collection at the University of Minnesota. The Tretter Collection is a archive of LGBT history. It was started by um, a white guy, a gay guy. His name is Gene Nicholas Tredder. Um, and so, you know, consequently 15 years ago when he started it, um, you know, he was really focused on gay history and, and that, that was the majority of the collection that we have. And it still is probably the majority of the collection, but he retired and the new, um, um, curator was hired. Her name is, uh, Lisa Vacoli. And she wanted to really increase the the lesbian holdings, the bisexual holdings, and the transgender holdings. And so, you know, unfortunately, because of the transgender community's um, invisibility for so long, and really hiding in the in the closet and in the corners and in the basements, like there was no records and papers and books and organizations to really try to collect from. Not many. There's a few. But they figured that the best way to try to get information is to actually talk to transgender people and to do an oral history project. And, um, you know, me, I'm a storyteller and I'm a poet. Mm -hmm. And um, when I saw the – it's interesting. The the curator came to an event that I was sponsoring, the Transgender Equity Summit at the city of Minneapolis, um, which I'm really proud of. But we were we were doing the summit, and, and they came to recruit people for the job. So she gave me the job description, and she said, "You know, if there's anybody you know, um, please pass this along." And um, I looked at the job description and I thought to myself, man, I'm not giving this to nobody (laughs) because I want this job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, you know, I applied for it. Um, It is about telling stories. It's about um, uplifting the transgender narrative and shifting the cultural awareness of um, transgender identities and I was like man i gotta I gotta do this and even though it meant a pay cut for me um, and it means a whole lot more traveling that i than I am used to and or really like, even though it is good to get around the country and see my friends like you and mm-hmm. make new friends and um meet all these amazing people um you know, so so I'm really fortunate and blessed. Right now, last night, I just completed my 145th interview, which I'm learning. Like, I'm learning, Michelle, like, that's a huge thing. Um, I have talked to a number of reporters and TV hosts and, you know, like, eight years down the line, they might be like, oh, yeah, I just did my 100th interview. You know, um, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, even even Barbara Walters. You know, I mean, her interview count is, you know, well, she's been doing it for fifty years, so you expect her to have, you know, a bunch of interviews. But, um, one hundred and forty-five interviews. That's a hell of a lot of stories and hours of real people telling their stories telling their um histories and um and I get to document that for posterity and it's just uh it's an amazing thing it warms my heart the stories are so amazing so brave uh, they exhibit so much resilience and yes there's a lot of pain there's a lot of tears in my interviews sometimes uh but a lot of joy and a lot of beauty um, in the responses that I that I'm getting from community members, and just to know that we are preserving these stories. I interviewed Kyler, who you talked about, um,
3: mm-hmm. you
2: know, and um, and so many other people, and it's so important for us to, you know, Kyler was one of the first trans people to testify it's in Congress, you know.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so we got to capture those stories, we got to preserve those stories, and we have to make them accessible to people. It's one thing to capture and preserve, but how do we get it out to people and make sure that people can access it and learn from it, you know?
1: Well, with that, we're going to take a short break in our conversation, and Andrea will be right back.
2: All right.
0: Okay.
1: We're back with more conversation with our guest, Andrea Jenkins, here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Andrea, one of the things that I found, you know, interesting is like, like you said, there's all of this history. And I know that if you stop and you think about it, like you can think of like, oh, well, these are the people who I'd love to talk to. But then after you went through your short list, what surprised you? I mean, what, who was the oldest – Person that you talked to, and who was the youngest person that you
2: talked to? Great question. So, the oldest person uh, is an 85 year old woman. She might be 86 now. She was 85 at the time that I interviewed her, and I know she's still alive because I just talked to her social worker last week. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, She was the second person in Minnesota to get a sex change, uh, she had her surgery in the late 70s, mid mid 70s, um, and she worked as a coat check girl at a nightclub here in Minneapolis called the Gay Nineties, which is one of the longest running uh, gay clubs here in town. She worked there for 25 years. So she was really one of the first ambassadors of transgender people to the LGBT or the broader gay lesbian community, primarily gay lesbian community. Um, They call her Big Mama. Like every gay person in town knows Big Mama.
3: (laughs) She mm-hmm.
2: has a very salty mouth uh she was very, very sexually active when she was a younger woman um and she is not afraid to talk about her sexual exploits uh which makes for a very interesting interview uh <laughs> <laughs> but um but Big Mama is the oldest and um. One of the youngest people that I interviewed so far has been um um a 18-year-old um gender queer person by the name of Zeme Porter. Um and Zeme is has actually become a national figure um Zane was really deeply engaged in the fight to uh, ensure that high school students here in Minnesota could play on the sports teams that they um, identified with uh, as their gender and to be able to use the locker rooms and things. Um, And so they testified at the Capitol and they led all kind of protests and marches and all of these kinds of things. Dean is just now completing their uh, second semester in college um, and really has some brilliant ideas around gender and how gender is shifting and changing um, and and how – uh, gender intersects with uh, race and ethnicity. Um, just to hear this young person talk with such um, control and command of the language um, and articulate, you know, how they feel from day to day and the bravery that it takes to speak out about um mental health issues and, um, um, yeah, it's just, it, it, it opens my heart, man. I think we, you know, I talked about tears. I think Zane, Zane and I both sort of choked up a little bit during, during that interview. So, um, well, that's the youngest and the oldest, um, Mm -hmm. two very, very, very different people, um, Mm -hmm. I will tell you that Big Mama is very much on the binary gender line, like she completely identifies as a woman, um, and has only only ever had sex with men. Um, Zane, who is 18, identifies as genderqueer, has a girlfriend, dates guys, um, you know, dates trans people, like, it's just a whole nother world between them.
1: (laughs) I know, you know, and I, I think that especially, you know, and it's interesting sometimes when we talk to, like, people who've been in the community, and it's like, who, you recognize they have a hard time wrapping their head around this, because I know I was at a, for the Michigan Democratic Party they had the LGBT caucus sure. and they were going like okay well the people who are on it like the first one was a gay man then it was a lesbian mm-hmm. then it was in someone else who who identified as a gay man so then the first the next seat you know we're supposed to alternating and someone put their hand up and some and everyone like oh no sorry you're uh we already have a guy and so the next one has to be a lesbian he said no the bylaw says it has to be someone who identifies as different. And he said, I am gender non-conforming. Conforming, yep. And, and I should, you know, so I am going for that. See And you saw, like, some people like that, uh, uh. I mean, and it, and it wasn't, and there was even someone who wanted to ask, well, you know, well, are you transitioning? Are you by, you know, and then it was like, well, that's not your business.
0: What right. I'm saying that, you know.
1: is, you know, I am gender queer, and you're saying that this is supposed to be diverse and inclusive, and I'm saying that I should have a seat at the table, and that was to me like so empowering. Right. Mhm. That was so yeah. empowering. And and you see, like the different things, like I have trans. I have a trans man friend who just had a set of twins. And it's like you hear many people, like I said, from it's almost like generational, like, well, how come they can't make up their mind what they want to be? And and you want to say, well, you know, no, society has always made up their mind what we have to be. Right. And we're being who we are.
2: We're being who we are. and, And sometimes that means today I'm really appearing very feminine and tomorrow I might be appearing very masculine. And this is who I am. Um, and you have to, we have to listen to people and respect people when they tell us who they are.
1: Mm-hmm. In your, when you're interviewing people, do you ever, like, if you were talking to Big Mama and Big Mama said, what, what's, you know, who clearly identifies, you know, binary, I'm a woman, yeah. and – but in, in all the different people that you've interviewed over the months, have you ever like sort of gotten to that conversation with them? Like, you know, where even amongst ourselves, who we're sort of going like, well, you know, that's not who I am. or I don't understand. And I, I'm, I know at a Creating Change in Chicago, there's a big thing like about, you know, where younger queer people were feeling they were and where an older generation were. And the whole discussion about, which pronouns they wanna use. Does that ever come up like, you know, do you ever hear that inner conflict as you interview all these people?
2: You know, so it absolutely comes up. Mm-hmm. It comes up very often. Um, but I really try to take an approach um in this work as, you know, I'm I'm just listening and letting people speak their minds. So I don't get into debates with people about whether you know their viewpoint is right or wrong or you know I I really try not to um interject my own thought process into that into those interviews um but people do talk about the um the conflicts that arise. Um, and and it is somewhat generational, um, I would say. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's certainly, you know, people who are 18 and 19 and 20 years ago, 25, 35, whatever, that, um, you know, they absolutely... Say I'm a heterosexual woman, I only date men uh and then there are some older people um you know, like myself, who are queer and <laughs> you know i try to i'm I'm pretty fluid in my expression um and that that's changed over time uh I think there are still um societal influences that play out even within subculture groups. So, you know, for a long time in the African-American community, and I think it still stands, like it is pretty taboo for a transgender woman to say, I date women, you know, Mm -hmm. or to be in love with a woman, Uh, and vice versa, you know, trans men who who like men, you know. I've talked to people who have said, you know, they had been sort of heterosexual all of their life, Um, and then when they came out, they had, when they came out as transgender, you know, they became interested in members of the opposite sex. You know, because they just felt more freer in their gender expression. And so that freedom allowed them to explore more about their sexual expression. Um, So the conflict arises. But I really, like I said, I just try to listen to people and (laughs) let them tell their story. Uh, I really try hard not to get into debates with people or... Mm -hmm. Or try to change their minds about anything you know, like <laughs> if that's mm-hmm. how you i want I want to get you a real story, you know i'm not trying to influence the way you think about your own life you know so
1: so so with all this going on at your core, you're still of that artist
2: oh, absolutely.
3: you get an
1: opportunity to get back to 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 being that artist and is it affecting you? Do you find like in visual things are you, you know, when you're doing visual arts, does it has it taken on a new form or, or when you're starting to think about poetry, are you trying to to feel, you know, give a verbal expression to all these feelings that you're sort of being bombarded with, you know, even though you know, like you're sitting there interviewing quietly, you know, and, and trying not to get into it, part of you, you know, these words are coming in there. So when you get ready to to have some verbal expression of all these changes and things you're feeling, how are you are you able to get back to your art sometime? And does that give you, I guess, a, a release and expression or or bring it all together?
2: It, it it does. I mean, you know, I can't. I don't know if it brings it all together. I I would hope that it does. Uh, but this latest project that I've been working on, uh, I'm calling it. Uh, Bag Lady Manifesto. <laughs> and I'm, and it's a visual art project, but it's a, it is accompanied by a collection of poems. Like there are six poems that go with it. Um I've done three exhibitions of it so far. Uh it con- it consists of six visual art pieces and six um Uh, poems. And so I guess you would say this is probably one of my most ambitious projects to date. Um, It is currently, one iteration of it is currently on exhibition at the University of Minnesota in the Women's Center. Um, And it really draws on, you know, so if if you think about the title Bag Lady Manifesto the the initials if you did an acronym it's BLM right mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter <laughs> mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know and I was just when I started this project in twenty fifteen um, I really wanted to respond to you know the Black Lives Matter issue and movement that was um, that was going on and I really started thinking about how deeply um, engaged black women are in in the Black Lives Movement, but also in the movement for social justice period, like in black women were deeply engaged in the uh, Civil Rights Movement. I mean, if it wasn't for Mamie Kill, who made the decision to have a open casket funeral for Emmett Till, you know, we may not have had um, Rosa Parks one month later go sit on that bus and not and refuse to get up, you know. We may not have had the march on Washington. Um, We may not have had, uh, you know, the Fannie Fannie Lou Hammer saying, you know, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I'm not saying that those people didn't have those ambitions and that heart and passion and desire to to advocate for social change. But I'm saying maybe sparked something new that changed the whole way that debate was going. And that's the same thing that has happened with um, Charlene Carruthers and patrice colors and um you know some of the other sisters that were really that have been deeply engaged in um developing that hashtag and subsequent movement of black lives matters and so you know and then you know i thought about bag ladies and um you know, the song by Erica Badu, like, right? that's a deep influence on this. And I have been collecting these bags, just shopping bags and gift bags and grocery bags from all over the world because I do get a chance to travel a lot. And so for 15 years, I had all of these bags. And um, I thought, what a great way to symbolize the baggage and the heaviness that we carry as black women and, and trans women and as women, you know, lesbian women and women who uh, have been on the front lines fighting for equal access, equal rights to vote, equal pay, uh, the right to control our own bodies. Um, and that's why, you know, it's really interesting that um, TERFs or trans-exclusionary radical feminists want to shut down trans women and control our bodies and our uh, ability to make decisions about our own bodies, but on the same hand, say they are pro-choice and (laughs) They want to, con- you know, they don't want men um, saying what they can and cannot do with their vaginas. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's really interesting to me because the way I see it is that these are the same issues. You know, um, I should have control over my body, so I'm going to go stand up for Planned Parenthood. I'm going to go stand up for pro-choice um, women. Uh, Because I believe that all women should have the right to determine uh, what their bodies, uh, what they want to do with their bodies and not be subjected to the medical uh, industrial complex or patriarchy or any other systems of oppression that try and keep women from controlling their own narratives and their own bodies. Um, But, you know... To me, just to get back to your question, that's sort of how my art and my life and my politics and this social justice passion all sort of comes together um, and i I guess it's pretty successful we mm-hmm. had three three uh three exhibitions thus far um and Still working on. It's a work in progress. There's still four more um, visual pieces to complete, and we're working on getting the book published and everything. So, yeah, pretty exciting.
1: that's, a, that's exciting. I you know I might have to move to Minneapolis just so I can vote for you. <laughs> <laughs> All okay, right. Andrea, we're we love it. We'll come go. on.
2: We got room okay. for you.
1: Well, hey, but it gets cold there, you know. There are, it it know. gets
2: cold, girl. But today,
1: it's beautiful. It's 60 degrees today. That's how it is here. It really is. The sun
2: is out. It's like a glorious day.
1: Well, we're going to take another short break in our conversation, and we'll be right back.
0: Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. on Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. Join the collection at www.collectionsbymichellebrown.com.
1: And we're back with more conversation with Andrea Jenkins. Andrea, what sustains you? What gives you that balance when you, when, you know you know I know the song says, "When this whole world is getting me down i you know I go up on the roof, where do you go? What do you do to just sort of like some days when you just need to sort of like step away and do that kind of self care and the thing that warms your heart?
2: Mm, wow, well, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't say my family uh, and and my love, my partner um Those are the things that really keep me pushing forward. I have a 28 year old daughter. I have two granddaughters, uh, nine and five years old, respectively. Um, I have a beautiful partner uh, who has a 10 year old son. And so, you know, my mother and my sister, they're all really, really supportive. And that's where I really kind of go and re-energize and recharge. But, you know, my writing and my art is what really um, where my heart lies deeply and what gives me power, I think, if you will. So I try to write every day. Uh, Some days it doesn't happen, but I've been on this journey for about – 20 years, I got a whole cabinet locker full of <laughs> journals that uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with. One of these days, hopefully, they will turn into a memoir or two or three. Mm-hmm. You know, Maya Angelou uh, wrote seven memoirs and 35 books. So, um, um, you know, there's a lot of stories there. Uh, you know, I walk, um, but, you know, what really motivates me, and I was at a meeting earlier today, uh, the governor's task force on young women initiative, and I was contributing to what the plan is for the state to really address young women. And the last question they asked us was, who are some of your mentors Um uh, and, you know, I talked about my eighth grade teacher in Chicago, um, Mrs. Whitlow, who really changed my life and helped me to get to um, to this high school, Lindblom Technical High School, where all my peers were talking about what college they were going to. And so in order to fit in, I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm going to go to the University of Minnesota. Um you know, and that really changed my life, man. I, uh, I, I hadn't thought about college before um, going to this high school and meeting these people. And don't know if I would have if I would have gone to the high school in my neighborhood. But, you know, but I also uh, talked about um, Sabrina Williams. You know, I'm a tennis player, man. I love tennis. That is where I go to uh, move my body and get exercise. But also, I can, I can let go of all of the other stuff of work and social justice and all of that and just be free and just be one with the ball, as they say, and... Serena is like the epitome of athletes. I think she is the greatest athlete uh, working and competing right now in the world. Not the greatest woman athlete, not the greatest black athlete, not the greatest tennis player. Like, I think she is the greatest athlete on the planet. And I know that I am not alone in that assessment that many, Mm -hmm. many, many people um, rate her as that. Uh, But that being said, I mean, she's a great athlete, but she's also a great uh, social justice advocate. Her and her sister advocate for equal pay and have ensured that women on the pro tennis circuit get equal pay as men. Um, You know... um, She is deeply engaged in fashion. She embraces her body. She embraces her Mm -hmm. sexuality. Um, You know, um, she gives zero Fs. (laughs) I don't know what I can say on this radio program. (laughs) But uh, about who people think that she should date. Like, you know, she's engaged to a white man now. And... You know, uh, that is what's bringing happiness to her life, and she is able to to overcome that. And another reason why I really identify with Serena is because Serena faces a lot of the same challenges that transgender uh, African-American women of color face. Like, Mm -hmm. people accuse her of being transgender or being a man in a dress. Uh, her and Venus, for that matter, um, and, you know, how she is so much stronger and make fun of her muscles and all of this stuff, but she is proud, she is confident, she is strong, and she is unapologetic about her blackness, her physicalness, and her beauty, and that is a role model for me. And so, tennis yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. is where I go to 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 build myself back up. I mean, that, that, it is so true. I mean, I, I love her for those like the very reasons that she's unapologetic about who she is, and really, you know, anybody. It, it really should challenge, especially women, to not only accept themselves as they are, but to push back against those stereotypical. Roles or body types that are, quote unquote, defining beauty. You know, there is nothing but beauty yeah. when you look at, at Serena. You know. Yeah. Uh, well, uh,
2: it's evidenced by the fact that if you go pick up a Sports Illustrated, she's on the cover right now. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so whatever, whatever anybody else is talking about, Serena is doing her thing. <laughs> You know
1: what I mean mhm, we're coming into the home stretch here, and you know I think that there's a couple of things before I ask you my 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 question, which in many ways you've already had one of the things when i whenever I see a picture of you, I think of how they say how the eyes are the windows to the soul, and whenever I see a picture of you, I look in your eyes i see I see passion, I see that fire. I see that fierceness and that conviction, and it comes through in everything that you say. And it's just, I mean, between your eyes and your smile. I mean, it's like, oh, wow. yeah, and, and I mean, every time that I see a picture of you, like the first thing, I'm immediately drawn to those eyes. But then on the ones when you're smiling, it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, she can, she can be tough you know, has had to be tough, but here's this big heart and this warmth that comes through to you. Aww. And, um, and I mean, and, and that's just you. That's one of the things that I think of whenever I see you, whenever I read your words, it comes really through. One of the things that I ask everyone, and I, in many ways you have really lived a life that, that answers the question before I'm going to ask it, but I'm going to let you sum it up. I'd like to ask how you feel, that the intersections that influencing your life have impacted the different directions you've taken and how it's going to impact your future work.
2: Mm. Wow. Um Yeah, that's that's a couple to sum up. I mean, um, you know, certainly my identity is being transgender has really um you know i've been out for 25 years so it's been quite quite a long journey though i've known that i was i've been transgender all my entire life i just wasn't out about it um and um i mean i think that has given me some courage um some wisdom to understand that, you know, you got to take risk in life to be your full authentic self. Um, And I've also realized that the only way to be in life is to be your full authentic self. Um, And that's freed me up to do a lot of things, uh, to feel confident about Writing poetry, you know, um, to feel confident about standing up in front of crowds and audiences and speaking my own truth. Um, and And being a black person, combined with being transgender, um, you know, it really has given me an understanding of um, how systems of oppression, Impact um, certain communities and uh, sort of concentrate wealth and power in the hands of a few people, primarily old white men. Um, and you know, all of those experiences uh, have have led me to to believe and understand that, you know, if I don't do it, who will? you know. Um and so I know that there are people doing it. I just want my voice to be a part of that chorus that's singing for justice, that's singing for equality, that's singing for equity for all people.
1: That's right. Well Andrea, I, I wanna thank you again and I've got and if people want to see the collection of the trans oral history Or and or (laughs) uh, see your latest installation of art and poetry. How do they do that?
2: Wow! So great question. Um, You know, I I just have a YouTube video that just went up of a TED talk that I did uh, last year. So you know, you can go to YouTube and look up Andrea Jenkins. TEDx Minneapolis and um, you'll be able to access some of my poetry and um, um, thoughts about you know art and activism Um, you can go to www.umn Twin Cities Shredder Collection that's T R E -E 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 E T. No, T R E T T E R, um, Shutter Collection, um, at the University of Minnesota and be able to access some of the oral histories that we've done thus far. Uh, not all of them are up yet, but, uh, we will be adding more and more as the months, uh, continue to pass. Right now we have 13 up, we're gonna put up another 25 next week, and, um, and continuously add to that. Um, and if people want to contribute to my campaign, <laughs> they can yeah. go to uh, Andrea Jenkins for Ward 8.org. So that's Andrea Jenkins for F O R Ward W A R D 8.org. And that's all one word. Andrea Jenkins, four Ward eight, one word dot org. That's
1: great. Yeah. Well, I will. I will be putting uh, that information up there. Um, and if you don't have it, you need to have a copy of a T is not silent. <laughs> <But> it's, <laughs> hey, it's, it's still. You know, I have certain books that I keep like like right in the living room. That's right in a in a front page because I know that I, at some point in time I'm going to want to pick them up and grab them and take them and share them with people.
2: And that is one yeah. of those books, you know. So. Oh, I, I so deeply appreciate that, hearing that from you, Michelle. I mean, you know, when you write a book of poems, man, you ask me who my audience is. It, my audience is that one person that's willing to pick up my book and read it. Like, that's who the audience is. And um, to know that, you know, there is... Uh, not only you, but so many people who are really interested and um, really inspired by that work—it really warms my heart. So thank you so much. Wow! Well, and I you think... can pick that up at uh, Amazon.com. The Tears Not Silent: New and Selected Poems by Andrea Jenkins.
1: That's right. That's right. You know, we have to support each other, and I and I so support you, and I appreciate you being a guest here. Tonight on Collections by Michelle Brown, Andrea.
2: Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I love you. I love the work that you're doing. It's amazing. And keep it up.
1: Okay. Well, you get out there and enjoy the rest of this 60-degree weather. No problem. <laughs> Thank,
2: Thank you, Michelle. Okay. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. Well, I want to... Again, thank our guest, uh, Andrea Jenkins, and I will be posting some information about her on the Collections by Michelle Brown webpage and Facebook page. I want to thank you, our listening audience. If you missed a past episode of Collections by Michelle Brown, visit the archives section on www.collectionsbymichellebrown.com and connect with our guests. On the website, you can also tell us about someone you think should be featured on the show and get information on how your business or organization can sponsor an episode of Collections by Michelle Brown. Our featured sponsor for the month of March is the 5th Annual Boulder Than Out Conference in Chicago, Illinois. It takes place March 31st to April 2nd. For information about the conference, contact the Coalition for Justice and Respect at cjrchicago at gmail.com. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Good night.